This podcast is brought to you by Catch the Fire Boulder, where we're more than a church. We're family. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please go to ctfboulder.com. Imagine about 2,000 years ago, right before Jesus came. He hasn't yet been to the temple. He hasn't yet come uh, and been born. And imagine somebody praying at this time. And I'm going to give you an imaginary prayer. Father God, we have sinned. We have broken the letter and the spirit of every single one of your commandments. And we deserve the wrath and the lake of fire forever. But could you send the second member of the Trinity to take uh, to earth, to take on human flesh, and have him live the life that we failed to live, a perfectly righteous life? And then, could you have him die on a cross to take your judgment and wrath upon himself that we deserve for our sins? And then, could you have him be raised from the dead, thereby undoing the death that he just died so that he could live forever? And then, when we come to Jesus, could you, through his shed blood on the cross, forgive us for our past sins, actually all of our sins, past, present, and future? And then, could you take the righteousness of your son, who just died and was resurrected, through his shed, on the blo- uh, shed blood on the cross, could you take his righteousness and credit that to us, as if we did all of the righteous things that he did? And then, could you give us your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us and empower us to live righteously? And could you adopt us as children and allow us to relate to you as a loving father would to his own children? And then, could you prepare a home for us to live with you forever in eternity? Amen. (laughs) Who would have thought to pray such a prayer? I mean, those are just some of the things that Jesus did for us through the gospel. And in the gospel, God didn't just do what we asked. He did exceedingly above all that we could ever ask or imagine or think. Nobody would have had the audacity to pray what God actually did. God, make sure that you crush your son. Yes, crush the second person of the Trinity for me. Make him die the most brutal death imaginable, and then give me the credit for it. Wipe my slate clean. Oh, yeah, and give me all of his righteousness to boot. Would you do that for me, God? Nobody would have ever thought to pray that. But God did. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing, and it shows you how much he loves you. He loved you so much that even while we hated him in our hearts, he died for us and did all those things for us. So I'm going to give you a message today based on an outline of that prayer. All have sinned and we deserve judgment. We've heard that in the past few weeks. And as a, as a result of that, Jesus took on flesh and he lived a perfect life, the only perfect life ever, He became our blood sacrifice, and he died for us. 
He defeated death through resurrection. He offers us forgiveness of sins. Through faith in Jesus, we're justified, which means we are declared righteous by God, who has the authority to declare us righteous. He acquits us. As if you were standing in a court of law, condemned, he acquits us. Jesus empowers us with his Holy Spirit. And then not only that, he actually adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. And he prepares a place for us to live with him forever. So all have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is like a mathematical proof. If two plus two always equals four, if you're a human, you have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. That's just how it is. Sin entered the world through Adam and it broke that relationship that Adam had. Adam used to walk in the garden with Jesus. In the cool of the day, they would have a walk together. They would talk. God would be, he would have that fellowship, that closeness. But he also did what God wanted him to do. God said, work the garden. He did it. But through that obedience to God, he also received abundant blessings. He didn't have need of anything, and everything was provided. And God then even showed him, hey, actually, I've, I'm going to give you a really good gift. So he has him name all the animals to show that there's male and female of every single thing that lives on the earth. And I'm sure eventually Adam's like, where's my female? And then God, after showing him his need, fills that need. He didn't show him that need to be cruel or to be vicious or to say, haha, everybody else has one, but you don't. He showed him his need and then gave him the desire of his heart. He gave him the desire and then he actually fulfilled that desire. And that's how God treats us. That's how much God loves us. He shows us what we need and then he fills in those, those gaps in our lives. When we come before God, we have to feel the weight of our sin, that we honestly deserve wrath, that we deserve the lake of fire. We deserve eternal separation from God. Bruno had talked about how all sin, no matter what sin it is, separates us from God. It's like what we were singing today. We have this wall, and we want those walls to come down, and we want heaven to invade earth. When we come to him with a broken heart, remember Jesus talked about the blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be comforted. Um, when we come to him with a broken heart, deserve, knowing that we deserve that wrath, recognizing that even when we hated him in our mind, he died for us, when we come to him with that contrived spirit, he will accept us. He'll make us born again. He'll adopt us into his family. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll grant you everlasting life, and you'll become a child of God. So, Jesus took on flesh. In Matthew 1, it talks about Mary. And before she and Joseph were married, they were betrothed, but she was found to be with child. And that was a no-no in that culture. And it was going to bring shame to Joseph. And he had to make a decision. And God fortunately intervened and came to Joseph and said, I did this, and you should accept her. And through her and through your family, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Like that promise to Abraham, right? He's going to bring restoration. 
When you see this, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She hadn't been with any other man. She hadn't been with her betrothed husband. It was the seed of God that inhabited the egg of a human. And that's really important to understand because first it was prophesied, and then it happened. Remember, two plus two is four. If you're human, you have sinned. Jesus was human. And he had this amazing plan up his sleeve that nobody could have foreseen, where he was like, I'm going to come as a human. So he was 100% human. He was born of a woman, but he was 100% God. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this do? It allows him to be born under the same law of sin and death that you and I are born under. But as God, he's empowered to live a perfectly righteous life, one that nobody else could have ever done. And he fulfilled 100% of the law as a result. Now, what did he do with that? He has this power. He has this authority. How does he use that? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Ingrid had mentioned when she gave her message that all sin requires a blood sacrifice. And every year, the priests in Israel had to provide these sacrifices. On the altar, there was a continuous burning. There was a continuous sacrifice. And you could never atone for it all. It always had to be re-atoned for. But Jesus used his sacrifice not to atone for himself, but to atone for us. That's how much God loves you. He saw your need. He showed you your need through the law that you can never match up to the law. And in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to keep 100% of the law 100% of the time. Otherwise, you can't be in heaven. And so what he did was he did it for us. And the life of God is worth infinitely more than the life of a human. So if he's paying, I mean, let's say I, hypothetically, which could never actually happen, I lived a perfect righteous life, and I decided to die for my wife. Well, maybe one for one, she gets my righteousness. But you see, the, the value of God's life is worth more than any of his creation. And so he's able to redeem all of creation unto himself through that one act of sacrifice. And it's too small of a thing to only do it for Israel. It has to be for all humanity, for all mankind, back to Adam, to his second coming, and maybe even beyond. It has to cover everything. So Jesus' sacrifice covers sin, but it's not his sin, it's our sin. He's the only one in history, and his sacrifice was big enough to be that, that debt payment for the entire world. And he makes it available to everybody. Jesus defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 20 says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. How many are familiar with this scripture? If Jesus never died, what we're doing here is pointless. 
If, if he only died and stayed in the grave, then it's pointless. But because he raised, because he came back to life, we don't serve a dead God. We serve a God who's alive right now, who can hear you, who knows you, who's seated at the right hand of the Father in all authority, and we are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? So if he's next to the Father and we're in Christ, where does that put us? Next to the Father. We are right there with him. We have that close authority, that close relationship with God. But what did Jesus do while he walked the earth? Only what he heard and saw from his Father. So Jesus lived an obedient life. What does that mean that we need to do? See, God is not dead. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he loves you. He wants that intimate relationship with you, but he also wants us to obey him. Jesus offers us forgiveness for sins. John, 1 John 2.2 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation is about a 5 $6 word. It's like... One of those words you don't hear every day in conversation, so I'm going to break it down for you. Uh, propitiation means he's covered our guilt. He became our substitute. He assumed our obligations and paid them when we could never pay them. That's the propitiation. This means that Jesus died one time for all. No longer did high priest have to offer annual daily sacrifices to atone for the people. Jesus did it once, and it was for all time. Past, present, and future. Jesus' blood covers our sins. And that makes us justified. Is it justified through our works? Through our obedience to God? No. It's justified by faith. We're justified by faith. Romans 4, 5 to 8 says... To the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith has always come through belief. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was accounted to him that way. That's actually in the Old Testament in Genesis 15 and in the New Testament in Galatians 3. It's pretty important that even Abraham, before Jesus ever came, was counted righteous through faith. So this is a timeless principle. But we have the advantage of time. We have the advantage of what's happened in the past. We don't have to look forward like Abraham did to the coming Messiah. We have him in hindsight, and we can see what God did. And it's amazing. We're not justified by our works. We are not justified by obedience to the law. Jesus did that. He justified us through his obedience and through his follow-through. And it's only by faith in what Jesus did that he transfers his righteousness to us. And now we are, before God, we have obeyed 100% of the law 100% of the time. And we know in ourselves we could never do that. But God looks at us as the fully righteous judge and says, it's legal. You get that. Thank you, God. Thank you for loving us so much. And if that wasn't enough, 
that he would forgive you your sins and that he would count you righteous and allow you to come before him without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. He empowers you with his Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 says, and I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 16, 7 says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And how many people know that Jesus, when he says he's going to do something, he follows through. So in Acts, Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He doesn't say it once. He says it at least three times. And then he does it. Pours out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he continually pours out the Spirit. In fact, if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he'll baptize you again. The Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean be filled one time and then go away because we leak. <laughs> I do. You know, I, I get filled and then eventually I, I, I want to cut somebody off in traffic and I want to, you know, be upset with my son for what he just did to me. And so we need that continual infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's not be filled one time. It's be being filled with the Holy Spirit continually. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, he is available to you today. If you ask Jesus, Jesus will pour him out on you. He will baptize you in his Holy Spirit. And if you've not received that baptism, I would ask you, please, don't leave today without praying with somebody to receive that baptism that will empower you to do what God's called you to do. Adoption. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So how do we approach God? We can approach God as slaves. That's kind of legalistic. I have to do what my master says. We can approach God as adopted children. To a, a father that loves us. And we can experience that love. And I, for one, would rather approach as a child than as a slave. Abba symbolizes a correct and intimate father-child relationship. I've heard some people say that Abba means daddy. And as I've researched it a little bit, I've come to realize that that's not 100% accurate. Daddy is a good step in the right direction because it shows that closeness, that intimate relationship. But it leaves out the authority to some degree. And so there's two elements to Abba. One is intimacy, but the other one is obedience. Abba captures that intimacy and the closeness, but it also captures that authority Peace that God has. I heard this story of a man who had flown to Tel Aviv and he was in the airport and he encountered a Jewish man and son in the restroom and the son was young, like younger than my son Ethan who's seven. And he said, okay, we're going to wash our hands. And 
the, the son maybe didn't want to do it or whatever, and he says, I want you to call me Abba. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't just mean daddy, closeness. It means you will do as I say because I have the authority to ask this of you. So that's how we need to come to God. Yes, as a loving father who has our best interest at heart and who wants to spend time with us and walk with us in the cool of the day and is entertained by the things that we'll come up with. But also as the one who does what he wants. Adoption is voluntary. I mean, think about how many men sire a child today and are absent from that child's life. That's not a, a, a father to that child. I mean, the child is there as a result of that man, but not being discipled and brought up by that man. So there's so many absent fathers today, and when somebody makes a conscious choice to adopt a child, to say, I'm going to make the choice to love you and to protect you and to raise you and disciple you and show you the way you should go. That says a lot. God's not the one that just makes converts and leaves us to our own devices. He wants a relationship with us. In fact, he's adopted us into his family. It's the Jews that are the children of God that are the chosen people of God. But he's allowed us to be adopted into that family. We're in hu imperfect humans, and we have a perfect heavenly father. We don't have a father who is imperfect like our imperfect fathers were, like I am to my kids. I, I get mad sometimes. I have disciplined in anger. I know that's wrong. And... When I make those things wrong, I come to my child and I apologize. But do you know God has never had to apologize? Because he's never done anything wrong. He loves you. He always treats you right. And he wants that, that relationship with you. We have some good friends that in 2020 adopted a daughter in Adams County. And we were able to watch the adoption process on Zoom because it was 2020 and you couldn't go to the courthouse. And so it was kind of neat. I don't think I would have been able to see it otherwise, but you could see the love that they had for this, this girl, that yes, we will raise her, yes. I mean, it was so funny, the mom, like the judge would be asking a question, she's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, <laughs> just like, get through it, you know? They were so excited to have this daughter in their family and to make it official. And they weren't used to each other on day one. The daughter, came to the family with some trauma from her past. And they still work on that today. And isn't that true for us? On day one with God, we don't just come in and we're not perfect. We have some trauma from our past where before we knew God, this is what we did. And that stuff lingers in our life. But these parents that I know, they're working through that with their daughter and they're training her. She's learning the rules and the customs of the home. She's receiving training and discipline and correction. But it's not with a hard hand. It's with a heart to see her improve and to be the best daughter she can possibly be, the best woman. So often we think in adoption of what we get. What, what do I get when I come to Jesus? Why should I do that? Well, this girl gets a new identity. 
she takes the family home. She, she's, a, she's a place. She has a place now in the family home. That's what we get as adopted children. We get a new identity. She takes their name. We take the name of Jesus. We take the, we're Christians. We are followers of Jesus. This girl has an inheritance as a daughter in the house. We have an inheritance as adopted children. She gets her own room in a great family home. And we have a place that Jesus is preparing for us in his home. She gets loving parents and an older brother who both care for and encourage her. We get a loving father and Jesus, our older brother, who's going to look out for us and protect us. We get a sense, she gets a sense of belonging, a belonging to a family, something she wouldn't have had if she was growing up in the foster care system. She has a home that's built on the foundation of Christ. She also has a church family now because they attend church. She is receiving a great education. She has extracurricular activities, healthy meals. I mean, the list goes on. And God wants all that and more for his kids that he chose. He made a conscious choice to adopt you into his family. We sometimes fail to accept our responsibilities as God's adopted children. Common rules for children in the home are to obey the family rules. That's what I expect from my children. They do chores. They attend school and they do homework. They make their bed and they clean their room. They may even have to do the dishes. <laughs> I know. Uh, there's a specific time we'd like them to be in bed. They, they may have a curfew uh, when they get older. And so there's rules that we need to live by. And I expect my kids to follow those rules. And when they follow those rules, it shows me that they love me. It's not like I just need them to placate me. I don't necessarily need them to give me a gift. I mean, I just had a birthday this month. It was nice that my children remembered me in their birthday planning, in their gifts, right? My daughter gave me some Butterfingers and some nuts. I ate them. They were good. But that's not all I want from my child. What I really want is obedience because I have the, her best interest at heart. And if she follows what I am prescribing for her, she's going to be a better person as a result. And if we do the same with our Heavenly Father, we will grow into the person, the man, the woman that he wants us to be. So what are our, adopt, our responsibilities as God's adopted children? We do need to obey God's commands and we need to live by the Spirit. Because if we only obey commands, it's very legalistic. We're coming to God like slaves. And that's not it. We need to live by the Spirit. We need to live out of that love relationship, that empowering that he gives us. It's not a this for that relationship. It's not like if we stop obeying God, he's going to disown us. That's not it. I'm still going to love my kids even if they do wrong. What I hope is that when they do wrong, they come to me and apologize. They state what they did wrong, why it was wrong, what they hope to do next time, and we have a right heart relationship. If they just come and I can tell they still have the bad attitude, it's not enough. It's the heart. And God wants our hearts. So Romans 8, 12 to 17, I'm going to read this, this five verses. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, right? 
That's not why that's, we were not allowed, we're not called to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And God knows that. He wants the best for us. If you live, if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are God's, are, by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, that we, uh, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see, if you work with somebody, you have a common shared goal. And a lot of people make friends at work because we have common goals. We're doing things. We see each other a lot. You get involved in people's lives. You start hearing about things. You know what they're up to. And you care for them. And you honestly do. I care for the people that work with me. And Jesus wants us to work with him, to co-labor with him, to have common shared interests. He did it. He modeled it. He gave us a great example to follow, and he wants us to follow in that example. And he's going to allow us to live forever. John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You know, a Jewish groom would go and prepare a place for him and his wife to live. And then he would come and get his wife, and they would have their marriage, and he would take her to the home. Jesus has left. And what's he doing now? He's preparing a place for us. And once that place is ready, he's going to come and take his bride to him for us to live with him forever. That's how much he loves you. I, to be honest and a bit vulnerable, have struggled with this me message for weeks. I've, been, I've known, probably for two months, that I would be giving this message. And initially I thought, salvation, the gospel, piece of cake. The problem is, as I got into it, I was trying to get to the point that we become Christians. Like, if I believe X, then I, I will step from death to life. And what is X? I wanted to define that so I could say, here's what you need to do to be saved. But it kind of misses the point. Because we are saved for a purpose. And what is the purpose that we're being saved for? And so as I got further and further into this, Lane had some great input for me. Um, my wife did. And I just came to this point where I was like, it's not enough to just pass from death to life. It's for a reason. And so what is that reason? I've had to rewrite this thing four or five times. It's easy to talk about the benefits of salvation. Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. I mean, we should want to hear about that stuff and we should say amen and, and be happy. Uh, it's struggle, it's, it's difficult to balance um, obedience with that <laughs> because that requires something of us. And we know that we never measure up. And so we don't always want to hear about our responsibilities. We don't want to hear about how we need to actually do what Jesus says. Um, it's, I was trying to isolate that moment of salvation, but we believe in Jesus for eternal life. And it's not like something we did one time. 
Lane was, he said, like we are being filled, be being filled by the Holy Spirit. I believe that salvation is only through faith in Jesus. But do we say, I believed when I was 20, or I believed when I was 10, and so that means that now I'm a Christian for the rest of my life? Do I still believe? Because this belief is not a thing that happened in the past. This is a present thing that we do. Do I believe right now that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin? Not when I was at youth camp. Not when I was in Sunday school. But today, sitting here, do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And he, can I trust him to do what he said he'll do? This is like a union in marriage. To be married in Colorado, I looked it up. There's five things you have to do. You have to apply for a marriage certification from your county clerk's office. If you're approved, then you'll receive a marriage license or certificate in the mail. And then both people, whoever are going to be married, need to appear within 35 days to sign the license. Uh, if one party cannot be present, they can even do an absentee application. You don't even need to show up. Uh, both parties, let's see, they need to sign. Uh, the license is solemnized by yourselves. You can actually just do it yourselves. You don't even need anybody else there. Or you can have a retired judge, a court magistrate, or somebody who's licensed to officiate weddings do that for you. And then you have to mail the certificate back within 60 days. And if you don't do it within 60 days, there's late fees. That's how you get married. What if that's what I talked to you today about? That's how you step from death to life. <laughs> it misses the whole point. The point is not for me to put something on my wall. It's not a badge. It's not like a checkbox. This is a relationship. I mean, think about it. To be legally married, you don't need a parental blessing. Hopefully you ask for one, if, especially if you're the man. <laughs> you don't need a proposal or an engagement ring, legally. You don't need a public declaration of your engagement. You don't need to plan an event. You don't need to have a ceremony. You don't even need to have a reception. And it's kind of funny, Dom just said he was um, lamenting weddings. <laughs> he just uh, attended one. And anybody who's been through it, I'm sure you've had this planning process. And at one point, you're like, I just don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> but, but then you do. Because it's not about the wedding. It's not about the event. It's about the relationship and what comes out of that. The mechanics of salvation are similar to discussing a legal marriage. It avoids way too much relevant information. If I had married my wife five years ago and I had nothing to do with her, and then I showed up 60 months later and said, hey, here I am. Does anybody think she'd want anything to do with me? <laughs> if I never talked to her, never said I loved. Is that what we do with God? Do we come to him asking for him to save us, to be born again, and then discount the relationship and not spend any time with him? There's a point where Jesus is going to say, 
well done, good and faithful servant, come into my house or depart from me. I never knew you. Do we know God? He showed us how much he loves us by paying that ultimate price, by choosing to be that adopted parent, by choosing to protect us, by choosing to pay a debt we could never, we could never pay on our own. That's how much God loves you. And for us to just say, thank you, God, I'll take that, check marks the box, and now I'm off to my next thing, it's disrespectful. It's, it's not the way that we should interact with. It's not, how, it's not the, the response that's commanded by such love. Getting saved is not just something you hang on your wall. It's the beginning of a lifelong relationship with your creator. And there's a lot of different ways that this relationship is described throughout the Bible. The Bible describes this relationship as a loving father who you can trust to always act in your best interest. You're close, but you also need to do what he says. Do you, how many people know that no Lord is a contradiction in terms? <laughs> if he's Lord... What he says goes. You don't say no. So yes, Lord, is the only appropriate response. The Bible also talks about a relationship with a loving spouse who cares for and respects you. Jesus is the head and we are the bride. That's an intimate relationship. But we also need to honor each other's wishes. If I just trampled over my wife's wishes all of the time, but I tried to still be intimate and close, it wouldn't work. If, she, if there's something she really wants me to do, you can call a honeydew list, or you could say, there's this thing I really want you to do. My wife does not mow the lawn. And sometimes the lawn needs to be mowed. And I can tell she really wants me to do it. If I just never do it, it's not gonna be good. <laughs> I have to honor her wishes. And that will lead to intimacy. Read between the lines. <laughs> the Bible also talks about relationship with God as a king to his subjects. What kind of subjects are we? Are we loyal subjects? The king has the authority to grant you life or death. I mean, there's stories of when people appeared before Solomon, and he had the authority with a child, a baby, to have it killed. And he didn't do that. He used that authority and that knowledge and that wisdom to judge rightly, just like our God judges rightly. He has the, the power, though, to get, grant you life or death. And he cares and he serves you. Think about that. He doesn't just sit on his throne and expect you to do whatever it is that he wants you to do. He gets down and serves you, his loyal subjects. That's a picture. The Bible talks about Jesus and our relationship with God. Jesus is our older brother who will stand up for and protect you. And when you're with your older brother, you can feel safe like you have an advocate. He's going to argue on your behalf. Now, we as imperfect people, we may not have experienced that. We may have experienced, I know when I used to play video games with my brother, if he would beat me, he got a 
punch to the arm. <laughs> and I feel bad for that. That's not how I should have acted. But Jesus never did that. Jesus has your best interest in heart. Jesus also, or the Bible talks about your relationship with, with God as your closest friend, closer than a brother. Would you dishonor his wishes or would you make good on your obligations to him, to your closest friend? So we are saved by faith. We are not saved by works. Nobody can boast. If we were saved by works, just walk down this trail with me for a minute. If we were saved by works, or by a commitment even, like, I'm going to do this for you, then we could say that so-and-so's works were better than the other person's works, and we could then boast in those things. Or we could say, I had a stronger commitment than he did. But that's not what, it is, what it's about. It's about belief. It's about faith. God made this available, and I accept. I receive. I will accept Jesus's righteousness for me. But doesn't that command a commitment to him? While salvation itself is not a commitment, it is belief, it is faith, it's not the full thing unless you commit to that relationship, unless you commit to walking with him. See, Jesus's gift was free to us, but it was the most costly gift that could have ever been paid. I mean, he created everything. So somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, who's a billionaire, or Warren Buffett, who has thousands of employees and companies that he's invested in, they pale in comparison. They are the creation, not the creator. Everything comes from God. So you have the most wealthy the best positioned, the most powerful person in all of history who comes as a baby to a poor family and doesn't even have a house. Like he has to flee to Egypt. He has to go back to Galilee. And when he goes back to Galilee, it's the kind of place where people are like, does anything good come from Galilee? I mean, think about five points 20 years ago. Does anything good come from five points? Now, today, it's been redeemed. It's a pretty nice place. But 20 years ago, that's the kind of thing you would have said. Does anything good come from Galilee? That's where Jesus came from as a human. Nazareth, Galilee, eh. He'd be called a Galilean. He was from Nazareth. Thank you, wife. <laughs> so what do we do? What, what do we need to do with this salvation that Jesus has called us to. The Bible says we need to put on Christ. And this is what I, need, what I took from Lane. It's not just passing from death to life that matters. It's the relationship. The passing from death to life makes the relationship available. But we still have to choose to walk out that relationship with God. So we need to put on Christ. There's a few places in the New Testament, in Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 14, Colossians 3, Galatians 3. It's a pretty important concept of putting on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? It means that we do not gratify the desires of our sinful nature. There's certain things I want to do sometimes that are not right. And if I do those things, I'm not putting on Christ. But if when I want to do that thing, 
Just like when Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness, when he wanted to have the authority of all of the kingdoms of the earth, when he wanted to turn stones to bread to eat them because he was hungry, instead of doing that, he chose to put on righteousness. And that's what we need to do. It's a conscious choice at that time. Instead of focusing on gratifying those sinful desires, where's your focus? It should be on Jesus. It should be on the Holy Spirit. It should be on his righteousness. I am holy, therefore be holy. Be holy because I'm holy, it says in 1 Peter. We are created to be like God in, in true righteousness and holiness. We need to wear that grace and forgiveness of Jesus as a glorious garment for everybody to see. That we're walking in grace. We're walking in forgiveness. Putting on Christ means abiding in Jesus, living to serve, to please him, being united with him. And if we're united so closely with Jesus, we want people to see Jesus when they see us. That is putting on Christ. Another way that Paul describes this in the New Testament is to die daily. It's talked about in Luke 19. Jesus actually talked about taking up our cross and following after him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 4, Matthew 10, John 10, Galatians 5. It's a common theme of dying to self. And so we need to die to ourselves. We need to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Paul said, I die daily. And when he said that, he was bolder than me. He was more bold. He, he was the kind of guy who would walk into a synagogue of Jews and teach them a message they may not want to hear at risk of his own life, knowing before he set foot in that place, they may stone me when I leave. He had to be ready to die every single time he walked into a place to proclaim Jesus. That's dying daily. He died in his mind before he ever set foot in there. He counted his, his own comfort less worthy than serving God and doing what he knew God wanted him to do. I want to have that level of boldness. Paul wrote that we have to die to sin in Romans 6. We have to die to our flesh in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. And that we also need to die to ourself. And not only did Paul preach that, he actually lived it. And then he said, follow me as I follow Christ. He said, here's, here's the example I'm setting for you. Do what I'm doing. So the big takeaway for me when I was preparing this is that it's not enough just to believe. Yes, we believe. And when we believe, we're saved. And faith is the only thing that saves us. It's not works. It's not our obedience. That's when we pass from death to life. But that makes it possible now for us to live the life God intended for us. And if we don't choose to do that, are we really putting on Christ? Are we really taking full advantage of this relationship? Or are we getting married and then walking away and never having anything to do with our God? John 3 is an amazing chapter. It's where Jesus talks to Nicodemus. And it's at night, and it's on a rooftop. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And you may hear 
throughout this, the Gospels, Jesus talking, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And, you know, there was a lot of things that the Pharisees did outwardly, but they didn't have the heart. And so he talks to Nicodemus, but Nicodemus has the different heart. And so he shares things with Nicodemus that he wouldn't share with the other Pharisees. And one is that you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused by this. He's like, what, am I going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? He says, no, you don't need to be born physically again. You're born by water and by the spirit. By water, physically, from your mother, your water breaks, you know, it comes out. And you're born by the spirit. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. And then he says, the spirit's like the wind. You, you, you can't see it, but you know it's there. And you don't know where it's going, but you know it's there. And that's how we need to be reborn. And he says, just like Moses, when he held up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, I mean, all right, so this, if you've not heard this, the uh, Israelites were walking through the wilderness, they were getting bitten by poisonous snakes, they were dying, and they needed something to not die. I said to Steve, they needed something to save them, and he said, no, salvation is different. <laughs> but what they needed was healing. And so when Moses held up that bronze serpent in the wilderness, the instruction was, if you get bit by a snake, look at the snake, the bronze snake, and you will be healed. And that's what Jesus does for us. He said to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up that snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus became like that serpent on the snake, or that, that's on the stick, on the tree. And as we look to Jesus, we're cleansed, we're healed. We're forgiven. We're not going to be killed by that poison that every single one of us is born with. And then he tells Nicodemus the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't take. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him, remember it covers everybody, Whoever would believe in him would not perish like from the snake bite, but they would have eternal life with him in heaven. And then he says in John 3, 21, but whoever does what is true, whoever does what is true, that's an action. That's not a belief. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That his what have been carried out? Have been carried out in God. And then John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's faith. That's, that's, that's that salvation. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And this is what challenged me when I was preparing this message. How do we stop at belief when it's so clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I'll tell you what, I don't want the wrath of God to remain on me. We are created to know God and to do his will. That's why he says to call him Abba Father, to know him and to respect his authority. There's two main reasons I can think of that we were created. 
One is in John 17, that they know you. Jesus prays, thank you, God, that we know each other. My prayer for them is that they would know you as I know you. So that's one. We're created for that relationship to know God. The second one is in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's two parts. We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we're saved. God wants us to obey him. He wants us to know him and to keep his commandments. But we have imperfect bodies. We're imperfect people. We live in an imperfect world. And there's times we just don't. So what should we do? When we mess up, we need to come back to him without delay. We have trauma as adopted children from this world before we came into this relationship with God. So when we mess up, we need to recognize we messed up. We need to confess and say what it is that we did wrong, why it was wrong, just like I asked my children to do. We need to have that heart of reconciliation. And when we repent, it doesn't mean we're going to turn around and not ever do that again. It means that in my heart, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm choosing you instead of that other thing. I'm putting on Christ rather than the, the desires of my sinful nature. That's repentance. It's in the heart. So here's a couple examples. If I do something that my wife doesn't appreciate, she'll let me know if I don't already know. And then it's up to me to acknowledge what I did wrong. And I need to apologize. And I need to seek reconciliation in our relationship. And fortunately, my wife is a gracious woman, and she has grace for me, and we move on. If my son comes to me and has done something disobedient, I'll talk with him, and I want him to tell me what he did wrong, and why it was wrong, and what he should have done instead, and I'm looking the whole time for his heart. Does he have a heart for reconciliation? If not, he gets a timeout, and he can come back when his heart's right. And that's how we need to be with God. Come to him with that heart of reconciliation. And he has grace for our missteps. So yes, God wants obedience. We're not always going to measure up. Just come back. He's the same with us. If we confess what we do wrong to him, he will be gracious. He'll cover us with what we never deserve. And we can move on in our relationship with him. So, what should we do with this today? If you've never accepted Christ, step from death to life. Believe him. Believe that his sacrifice on the cross was enough to pay for your sins. Believe that he wants you as his adopted child and that he's going to give you a place to live forever. If you've never received the Holy Spirit, pray with somebody today before you go and receive the Holy Spirit. He's there. He's here. Commit to follow Jesus, to being a disciple, to obeying his commandments. And if you've gone off track, today's the day of repentance. Come back. Acknowledge to God what you did wrong. Ask him again to walk this out with you. Commit in your heart to do what he wants you to do. Make that relationship right again. 
and God will restore that relationship. So I'm going to start, I'm going to finish with what I started with, and I'm just going to pray this prayer for us today. Father God, we have sinned. We've broken the letter and the spirit of every one of your commandments, and we deserve the wrath and the lake of fire forever. But thank you, God, for sending your sec- the second member of the Trinity to earth to take on human flesh. Thank you for having him live the life that we failed to live, a perfectly righteous life. Thank you for having him die on the cross and taking your judgment and wrath upon himself that we deserved for our own sins. Thank you that you had him raised from the dead, undoing the death that he died, and thank you that he is alive, living with you today, forever. Thank you, God, that when we come to Jesus through his shed blood on the cross, he forgives us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you, God, that you have taken the righteousness of your son and credited it to us as if we actually did everything that he did. Thank you, God, that you give us your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to empower us to live righteously. Thank you, God, that you've adopted us as your children and that you allow us to relate to you as children would to their loving Father. And thank you for preparing a home for us to live with you forever in eternity. Amen.